What do you, uh, Jordan? What do you think about these Twitter changes? How's it? How's it? Are you, how are you coping? <laughs> I'm hanging in there, Rob. It's just a yeah. difficult time for all of us. <laughs> I, I was like, I had come to grips. You know, I was like emotionally preparing myself to lose the blue check. I mean, you know how much I cherish that and I value it, and how much it's a part of my identity. You know, as a person, yeah. as a human being, I was ready to lose it because I because I, I don't have Twitter blue and I don't really have any intention of getting it but lo and behold uh the last minute there was a last minute reprieve and i still got it still got the blue check and i noticed as well that like it's so funny because there's a difference between the people that have a blue check because of of getting twitter blue if you click on the check it says like this person paid for their check and other people it says this is verified (laughs) because it's notable so Uh i'm one of the i'm still one of the elite chosen few you uh you phonies in the hoi polloi, might have the might have the check now as well, but I'm still I've got the elite qualifier there, so now I feel <laughs> feel all right about this whole Musk era. Actually, it's uh, it is pretty funny to see people shelling out like, especially like right wing people who are like shelling out uh, eight yeah. dollars and then being like, <laughs> guess who's triggering yeah. the libs? It's like verified I don't care. cat turd. Yeah, I don't. We'll get I, whatever, man. I do not care. <laughs> Congrats, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because like, actually, I just I just checked your account because I know you do pay for Twitter Blue and did previously, and I thought it maybe switched your check over to the the sucker one, and I was going to make fun of you, but you said still says you're verified because you're notable in government news and entertainment, so you're all, you're yeah off the hook this time, sir. <laughs> I like Twitter Blue because I like to have an edit button because I fuck up my typing yeah. so much. Like I, I was I got it when they first came out with it because you know the, the premise was the, the first i started with the undo tweet which it gives you like a 30 second window to review it which is helpful for me because i'm an idiot and then it was like oh we're going to give you 10 minute videos just like okay post yeah. I, I frequently find things that i need to post or want to post for work that are longer than 220 okay great you got me there three dollars to five dollars fine I'm still going to keep... Then they added the edit button. I'll pay $8 for the edit button. I don't give a shit. I do hope they don't change the thing. I don't want to be like the <laughs> the paid for the Twitter Blue guy. Well, that's the funny thing. It's like I wouldn't be opposed to paying a few bucks a month for Twitter. Like I would like to post longer video as well. There are benefits to it. It's just now I feel like I'm being like blackmailed or extorted by the world's wealthiest man to bail him out of a shitty business deal. So it's like now just on general principle, I'm not going to give, give him the eight bucks then. Even though it's like I'm not, I'm not opposed to the idea, you know, there are some things, but now I feel like I can't. Now it's like, <laughs> now I feel like it's like I'm, you're just a, a sucker getting pulled into Musk's uh, a scheme to, because he, he got involved in like a meme business deal that he didn't intend to follow through on and he stuck with it and you're just like, he needs you to bail him out and I have no interest in that. Right. Yeah. I, I'm grandfathered in, I think, like I had it before he fucked it up. So I'm just going to justify it 
to myself that way. But the one thing, like, it's just with so many things that he does, he just rushes and botches the rollout, and it's a disaster. Yeah. Uh, and he says and, he's going to do something, but doesn't actually follow through on any of that and doesn't have any idea how it works. <laughs> Weird. Right. This is the but first what, time this the, has happened. The rush to implement this drastic change immediately has led to them also saying, we're not going to do any identi- identity verification <laughs> for these accounts either, which today, when they rolled it out officially... <laughs> has led to some of the funniest people exploiting the system. You know, I saw like a fake LeBron, someone just made their account, the fake LeBron demanding a trade, Adam Schefter saying that Josh McDaniel was fired, Uh, Connor McDavid, someone made a Connor Connor McDavid one saying that he wants out of the (laughs) Edmonton Oilers, and then like fake Rudy Giuliani's, fake Elon Musk's, all these different people. And it's like been funny to watch but like the right is like, and and in Elon stands, the reaction is like, "Jokes on you guys! You just gave Elon Musk eight dollars, and that money adds up." It's like, "Congrats, it's man! Really. You're gonna you're gonna make like a few hundred bucks from charging people eight dollars one time for to do a joke." Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, that is the funny thing is you just assume strategy. you just assume that like, well, no one's gonna pay eight dollars to to impersonate someone or spread misinformation. It's like, no, actually, many people will do that yeah, yeah they will. they'll just they'll pay eight bucks just to you know do one big impersonation uh, joke and then just move on with their lives it turns out there is quite a there is a market for that yeah and, and you know what and maybe there is genius to this strategy and wanting these people to do that because you get to take their money rob all he needs is for 5.6 billion people yeah. to do this and he's made his money back on the entire deal this is so, why we're not that's the big that's innovators. Not that, that's not that hard. Yeah, the big business <laughs> geniuses. That's why we're out here in the trenches, in the content mines. And he's up there in, in Twitter Tower or whatever it is. And the you luxury, know need, I don't know. You know what we need, what? though? What do we need? We need 5.6 billion people to become paid interns of this show. Yes. Yeah. By going to the insurgents.substack.com. Subscribing Even 5.6 to the show. dozen would be, would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A real game changer for Rob here. Yeah, uh, please. I but yeah, just I a cool five point six billion. We know our listenership is is twenty thirty billion, so we're good. Um, yep. We have twenty to thirty billion unique listeners every episode. Uh, just five point six billion of you. Head on over to theinsurgents.substack.com. Become a subscriber. Become a paid intern. Uh, help support the show. We've been doing this now for a couple years. We love it. We're well over 100 episodes. You get access to our full back catalog of premium episodes. And you support independent journalism, which is something Elon Musk says will democratize the world and Twitter. So there we go. please head on over there. And you know what? I would encourage people. We have not done an episode of Feedback Corner for, I think, about a year and a half, I don't think. Yeah. And I would encourage people. <laughs> yeah. We kind of lo- we got out of the cycle of encouraging people to do the reviews. But please, if you uh, enjoy listening to this show, we go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It, we always enjoy reading those. It's been a while since we've caught up with some of the the fine folks who listen to this program who are often mocking us and intentionally misspelling our names and such, which is, you know, kind of frustrating and disrespectful, frankly, but please leave a review of the show. We'd love to read some reviews in one of the next episodes. Review the podcast on Apple podcasts. That's another thing you can do. Um, we've got Jack Crosby from discourse blog joining us in a couple minutes. 
uh, to help break down these midterm elections from last night. It's a kind of a crossover episode with uh, discourse blogs. So that's going to be pretty cool, right? Yeah, that was awesome. I, I really, I really enjoyed that. And discourse blog, who you all know, their their folks have been on our show multiple times throughout the year, uh, past couple of years. They are starting their own. Uh, I don't know if they're formally calling it a podcast. They are quote exploring the audio features on Substack. So to kick that off, they've linked up with us. So this is a a partnership co-branded episode with discourse blog. Yeah. Make sure to subscribe to them. Uh, if you can, the great folks who were all part of splinters team before that was shut down, uh, <laughs> for being critical of the, uh, the bosses, the owners, which, uh, more power to them. I love, I love that they're still, they're still yeah. working together. It's smart to do like an interim podcasting. Cause then you don't have to refer to yourself as a podcaster as well. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good thinking. You know what's funny? <laughs> what? One of, the, one of the pieces I wrote for Newsweek uh, a couple months ago, they just put my title as activist and podcaster. Ooh. And I like Sorry saw that, that and like cringed. And I just like didn't share. I didn't share <laughs> because of that. <laughs> and then when I wrote another one for them, and this was like, the first one was about, I was at this event in DC and there was like a, a, a active shooter scare. And everyone, like the crowd ran and the the event was uh, a March for Our Lives event after you vault. Uh, so it was just like weird that that happened there. So I described what it was like to be there and, and how that kind of connected to the national conversation on gun control. And then the second one I did was a much more data driven piece about housing prices. And obviously I want people to take that seriously because it's like I did a ton of like number crunching for it. So I like begged my editors like, please do not put podcaster in my title. <laughs> <laughs> that's good yeah <laughs> that's smart hey how was meeting bernie sanders i saw you met bernie dude how was that fucking sick <laughs> unbelievable yeah that yes that was like the fucking highlight of my year you i the can't believe expression it too oh dude yeah i po- i posted it on instagram you did a real life uh, face oh i was i was soy i was soy facing and pod yeah. champing so yeah. hard i couldn't believe it because he like, it wasn't just that I met him. It was that we were in this group po- waiting for him to come over for a picture. And he, like, walks up and just, like, walks straight to me and shakes my hand. I'm just like, okay. Hello. That was just, like, it was surreal. It was awesome. Yeah, and then I, cool. like, at the event, he spoke in Philly to get out the vote. And I, I was helping with the event. So I could, had, like, an all-access pass. And one of the organizers was like, you should follow Bernie on the stage. You should follow him with your phone and capture his introduction and walk out from like behind the scenes <laughs> like okay don't gotta tell me twice yeah. so i have this like really sick video of like us standing backstage him just sitting there him being introduced by uh Tinashe, who is a singer and performer who opened for him she introduces him and then like he and i like walking through the curtain onto this like stage in this packed uh venue in philly it was like it was awesome. awesome. <laughs> Just yeah. like the coolest thing I've ever filmed. It was so great. We're basically friends now. Yeah, we're uh, playing. We're playing Fortnite after this. So I got to wrap this up <laughs> quick. <laughs> we're playing. Du- he only wants to play duo. Sorry, he can't play. Yeah, he Bernie strikes me as a no build guy. I can't handle all this building. These kids, <laughs> yeah. they're making these giant towers. How am I supposed to compete with that? <laughs> that's that's probably what he says. 
Yeah, yeah. I often, when I start doing impressions without ever planning it ahead of time, like when it's going on, I'm like, this is this was a mistake to do. Anyway, mm-hmm. before I start doing any more elaborate uh, comedy bits, uh, let's bring on Jack Crosby of Discourse Blog. Uh, we had a great conversation with him, breaking down the midterm elections. He's going to be joining the program right after this. It's always nice to get you're hanging around, have someone bring you over a cookie. That's nice. Yeah. Nice feeling. One of life's yeah. great pleasures, I'm often saying. You know what I got the other day? Uh, since we're on the topic of cookies, yeah. you know those Dutch butter cookies that come in that round tin that... Like the one that's usually uh-huh. full of sewing uh-huh. equipment? Like yes. That's never full of actual cookies? That yeah, thing? exactly. I was at the grocery store the other day, and they had a display with them, and I like... Like my first thought, like seriously, was like, "Oh, that's that's a sewing equipment tin," <laughs> and then I thought, like, "Oh my god, this is the first time as an adult that I've had the opportunity to buy these and actually get the cookie." So I did, and they How fucking rock. Yeah, it's so good. It was like a nice, like nostalgia thing with a cup of coffee, maybe something like yep. that. Yeah, yep, they're wonderful. They're just yeah, so delightful. Very nice. They're very like they're very like neutral cookies. They are just kind of like little butter biscuits, but uh, yeah. they're tasty. You're entering your your grandma era, yeah. your gra- Jordan's oh grandma arc. Yeah, I'm gonna start like hitting you up for like computer advice because you're a whiz <laughs> with them, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> just Jordan, just unplug it and plug it back in. It's gonna be fine. Uh, Did you yeah, try speaking that? Of, yeah. <laughs> speaking of uh, of of grandparents, how about Chuck Grassley winning re-election? Older, I saw these stats. Everyone was comparing I mean, it's old as hell. his age to things that were invented after he was born, including the chocolate chip cookie. Yeah, that's wild. That's a good. Guess, that's a good healthy sign of democracy. <laughs> I guess I also never really thought like how old the chocolate chip cookie was. It seemed like a thing that like yeah, I mean, I was kind I of just been around for, that's been around for yeah. a couple hundred years. You know, like how long's apple pie been around? Like we've been making apple pie for a long ass time. I'm assuming. Yeah, we take these things for granted. It really does. It really does put all the fear mongering about Fetterman and his stroke and everything into sharper relief as well. It's like this motherfucker's 89 years old. Like you're telling me, he, like I'm like Jesus Christ. This institution is <laughs> filled with people that don't know what the hell's going on. I think they can tolerate. They can handle one guy who had a stroke one time well, and has to use he has to use subtitles. I think it's all right. It's not even. It's It'll not okay. even that he like doesn't know what's happening. Did you see his victory speech? He was so much more articulate in his victory speech than he was during the debate. I think it was a mix of the speed of the debate, the tele- needing to use the teleprompter to understand the questions, hear the questions, process them, that the rapid back and forth, but also just the jitters and the pressure from that situation. Because last night he sounded fine during his victory speech. Yeah. Like, I'm much more comfortable now, especially that he won. Yeah. And I think also, like, I mean, yeah, Fetterman's like a middle-aged man that's like going through a health episode as like some many middle-aged men do, you know, and it, like it sucks that it had a stroke, which is something that's like very often visibly apparent on the outside that you've gone through things. But like he's been tested and the doctors are like, yes, he's 100% there. He's probably going to make a, a full recovery. Like he's like, you know, 
just going to be like talking funny for a little bit and like stuff like there's going to be some wires crossed for a little while. And it's like, I just, yeah, I don't know how that like disqualifies him for office more than like, I mean, we talk about Chuck Grassley, but like, you know, Feinstein's still out there. Yeah. Like who like literally has to be like removed from committee meetings. Like the Democrats are like basically like, you know, sheltering him. She has like a mind her like sort of just like guiding her. Yeah. One of her aides is just like, you're voting for this today. You're voting. Yes. Make sure you vote. Yes. Just like holding grandma gently by the elbow. So she doesn't get like confused and afraid and like, (laughs) yeah, it's not the, it's the sanctity of the institution. I think is still going to be preserved somehow if they let John Fetterman in there. I mean, I think the real risk is that, like, he's just going to be too big for the chairs. Yeah. Like, are they going to have to get, like, an extra large, like, Senate chamber chair? Like, how, <laughs> how you know, like, is there is there, like, is there a point where, like, you're too big of a boy for the Senate? Yeah. Well, I mean, it is really exciting to see the Democrats go with the big boy strategy. Just this run is, some big lads, you know? This is something that I've been, like, I've been harping on and on about, um, and that I really think that the best electoral strategy for the Democrats is to just nominate, like, the physically, like, largest candidate <laughs> for any possible office and just go with that. Like, I yeah, I don't know. After tonight, I really do think if Biden doesn't run, like, and it's not because I, like, love the guy or like his policies, but, like, just go with Pritzker. Like, just call him on the phone and be like, all right, brother, you're up. Like, go for it. Just go be big. Because, like, you put him on the stage next to, like, Trump. Like, Trump's whole thing is that he's, like, this giant, like, weird man. And then you have Pritzker, who's a giant, like, less weird man. Seems, like, somewhat normal and, like, sort of charismatic. And he's just going to be like, look at this, like, weird freak. And there you go. You win an election. (laughs) Like, it's fine. Yeah. I think we've just solved their problem. Some people said it was messaging. Some people said it was not running on economic issues. We're saying, and I think we all agree, our listeners agree, it's that the size of the candidates has been insufficient for years. You can't nominate some scrawny guy like Biden again. You gotta, you gotta go big, go big or go home. I mean, Fetterman's. I think Biden won. Biden's like not a small dude. You know, he was tall. There was that whole thing where he was like, "I'm gonna take Trump out behind the baseball diamond," and like. I think that was the most effective piece of campaign messaging the Biden 2020 campaign had the entire time. He was like, I'm, like, I'm not afraid I'm of you. Like, yeah, <laughs> we're going to beat you up. I think I think that's that's literally like if we're going to be playing politics on that level, you know, like, I mean, the, the Republicans are, like Herschel Walker has a, you know, compelling, perhaps like chance at winning a senate election and like he just i mean you know what does he even do you could just put him like point him at a brick wall and be like that's your opponent and he's like do we have to vote and you're like no you just have to run through the wall and then you get to be a senator and like he's gonna do it well something also about fetterman that i think is is interesting that must be very surprising for some of the people in like the democratic party establishment is that just that he's not like an empty suit haircut like out of the McKinsey consultant factory who speaks in these boring platitudes that mean nothing you know he seems like a normal person you know it's which is a crazy which is an interesting strategy which they never really seem to employ this guy that can actually go and like talk to other human beings and relate to them um, who doesn't seem like he comes from this this uh, assembly line in the basement of the DNC he seems like an actual human being I think there's something to be said for that as well 
the the just juxtaposition in like Pennsylvania campaign events when they would have Fetterman on stage with Josh Shapiro who's running against Mastriano for governor and it's just like that's who Josh Shapiro is like literally exactly what you described like this like you know you know slim crew cutted like be suited McKinsey consultant who's like you know a lawyer like six times over or something like that and like I I actually don't know if Josh Shapiro is a lawyer but I think he is he was a um and and like just next to Fetterman who's like this you know ogre in basketball shorts that everyone's like oh yeah that's like that's my big uncle that's like that's Larry who like you know he's big that's his thing <laughs> that rocks though I think that's going to be Fetterman's real challenge is adhering to the the dress code of the Senate, the decorum, because this guy is uh, a hoodie and shorts in the winter guy, and Pennsylvania winters are no joke. So I, I'm, I'm excited for him. I'm also excited to have hoodie and shorts in the winter representation in Congress. My people have yeah. been uh, have been going for years without representation. This is a big moment for us. For a while in the late '90s, there was that like hoodie under the under the blazer look. Maybe you can bring that back. Mm-hmm. You can kind of have a happy. That's medium. like a rich person thing now. Yeah, yeah. Rich people like the like the thin hoodie underneath the yeah yeah do blazer. I don't know. That's elite. I, I can't do that. <laughs> I I tried to do that. Um, going to a uh, I think it was like an eight a.m. like English uh, seminar when I was a freshman in college, and I walked out of my dorm, and like one of the like hot girls on the floor next to me was like, "Why are you all dressed up?" And I was like, "I didn't have an answer for that." Um, and I, I never tried that again. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I guess well, I, I was not rich enough. I don't yeah. know. The hoodie probably had like holes in it and looked weird, like underneath a thrift store blazer. But like, you know, I've been there. I've been that guy. Yeah, it's hard to pull that off. Um, but listen, let's back up a little bit. Last night was uh, it was Tuesday. It was the midterm elections. Um, and Jordan, I'd, I'd, I'm interested to hear uh, your takeaway from last night. I think one of the things that we've talked about over the last two years, especially in that first year of the Biden administration, when it really seemed like they were getting nothing done, that the whole agenda that they campaigned on was being completely like blocked by Manchin and that they were going to go into this midterm with like very little to show for it. And it was really looking like it was going to be an absolute disaster for the Democrats akin to, you know, what happened with Obama in the first midterms under Obama. They did manage to pull off a few things um, over the last couple of months that kind of shifted the fortunes on that. And also, I think there's a lot of a, a case of a lot of like overreach when it comes to what the conservatives wanted, their deeply unpopular agenda. But last night, the result, it was not the, it was not the disaster that we were kind of predicting during that first, that first year, right? It was definitely not that. No, absolutely not. And that, you know, let people exhale on the left. Polling showed that the Senate was like just going to be an easy path to victory for Republicans in some of these states. I was looking today, the Real Clear Politics average had Oz up by, I think, a half a point, um, you know, certainly within the margin of error, but that wasn't the case. Uh, polling showed uh, Herschel Walker winning. That doesn't seem to be the case, depending on the outcome of the the runoff, but I would imagine when it's when you don't have Kemp on the ballot and people aren't showing up to vote against Abrams, because there were a lot of Kemp to Warnock voters. I, I think that and then mo- the vast majority, though, were, were voting Kemp and Walker. When it's just a, a face-off between those two, I think Warnock wins easily. And 
across the board, it just wasn't as disappointing. I know it's like tough for people to like see that as a win, but you have to look at look at it in historical context because you know the first midterm after a party takes the White House and Congress, the first midterm is usually disastrous. With the except over the past like you know forty fifty years, with the exception of two thousand two, because you had this you know horrifying national event in 9-11 that rallied people behind bush and also the war on terror like that just it's a it's a total outlier it's just you can't really compare any midterm to 2002 just because it was just such a different political environment but so looking back this is this is one of the best that the controlling party has had in decades which is astounding because like you said early days of this administration it didn't look like they were going to get anything done I don't think the Inflation Reduction Act, which is probably their biggest uh, legislative achievement, I don't think that had much of an impact because even though it was called that, it doesn't have immediate effects. You know, inflation is still a problem, and most people don't even know it passed. The things that mattered were Dobbs, the you know the the repeal of Roe, and the attack on people's bodily autonomy, and student loan forgiveness and i think those two things combined drove a historic turnout by gen z which is you know going to be the next fastest growing voter block in this country that politicians need to pay attention to and cater to and those two things combined led to you know some surprises some flips in the house and mitigating what a lot of people expected was going to be a quote red wave that just didn't pan out and it even cut off this this narrative that third way was and, and other centrists and moderates were trying to push, which was no matter the outcome, if Dems lose, it's because of progressives. If Dems yeah. win, it's in spite of progressives. It completely deflated that entire argument. Like immediately, they no were getting one all the op eds ready. They were all ready to go right. with all those excuses. You can't, you can't push that today because you look at how they ran in Pennsylvania. That's a critical swing state, and look what they ran on. Legal weed, you know, pushing for unions, supporting student debt cancellation in, in Fetterman, in the case of Fetterman. And they won. Like, it just, it, and then you look at, like, next door in Ohio, Tim Ryan ran a milk toast campaign, tried to agree with Trump on trade, said, oh, I'm not like the Democrats. And he got thumped by fucking geek J.D. Vance. Like, it's just so yeah. clear what the path to victory is for Democrats, and they need to embrace it. And that is prioritizing things that appeals to young people. Wow, shocker. And embracing economic populism. That's it. They're obviously going to, you know, fight, as we, I'm sure we would love to see them fight harder for protecting and enhancing abortion rights. But, you know, the, uh, these, these things combined is the path to long-term sustained victory for the party. And that's what Tuesday showed. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> I think this, it's strange to still be sort of frustrated with the Democrats when this was basically a best case scenario. Like the, the, the party's strategy for the most part in this election cycle worked. Some of that was, you know, in spite of their instincts. Some of that was um, due to risks that were horrifying to me. The, you know, contributing money to the most extreme candidates in the Republican primaries and things like that, that that worked across the board. And I think a lot of us have kind of had to eat crow about that because when it was happening, we were like, this is absurd. If you lose those elections, like you've just helped, you know, more extreme far right candidates get into office. But um, 
I think it was across the board, all of those candidates lost. Um, I don't necessarily want to see them take that kind of risk again. I hope that the lesson that they take out of it is not that if they fund the most far right person they can find in the primary and then set up a moderate against them, they can win. I hope that the lesson they take is if they run, you know, a genuine candidate that gives people something to vote for, not just something to vote against and have them like put forward a message that makes sense is is coherent and connects with voters that you can beat these kind of like astroturfed candidates like um, J.D. Vance and like Mehmet Oz and and like Blake Masters, you know, Um, I hope that's the lesson that comes out of that. I I, I don't know what it's going to be. I think we've seen a lot of the time in the Democrats is like whenever something goes right for them, they think, you know, this is great. It's going to keep going right uh, now. Like now is not the time to take risks and and like try and push forward on some of these things. Now we just kind of have to hit like cruise control and then they get blown out again. So I'm hoping that that's, you know, not the takeaway from this that we keep pushing that in the in any kind of special elections of the 2023 cycle, we try and upset whatever advantage the Republicans um, end up with in the House, you know, if it if it does come to pass that they they take the majority in the House. But um, yeah, I just I, I'm, I'm hoping that that's where they go with it. I think another thing it shows, um, which I would be interested to see stories about this, because anytime you know liberals or progressive candidates fail, you get this wave of stories about dissecting, like the ones that were already being planned to come out if the Democrats came up uh, significantly shorter, about how it was all these progressive values that were unpopular, they're too woke, they're doing all these things that don't resonate with Middle America, or whatever. Like all those, all those, all those op eds were kind of ready to go, and I'd be interested to see if uh, Republicans and the conservative movement is going to get the same treatment, because I think a lot of what the last night's results showed their agenda is like deeply unpopular with a lot with many people in the United States, you know, this like fixation on trans kids genitals, the constant like dead horse of uh, trickle town uh, economics and tax cuts for the wealthy, um, the obsession with crimes and police and stuff like that. I mean, this is like, this stuff does, did not resonate with people. And like, it seems like their, their fixation on these issues uh, with critical race theory and all that actually turned off a lot of people and their obsession with repealing uh, abortion access and attacking abortion rights galvanized a lot of people to go vote for Democrats who might not have wanted to do it uh, previously, so it really speaks to how deeply unpopular their agenda is, and I'm one, I'm interested to see whether the media, who's always seems to be uh, willing to run cover for the the conservative movement, is going to like point that out at all. Yeah, I think I think to what you're saying about them sort of doubling down on a lot of these like social issues and and kind of like panics and stuff, um, that it it turns out a huge amount of voters. Uh, you know, that's that's not their motivating factor for for elections. You know, they want material needs addressed. Um, I think the Republicans almost sort of got confused with the stuff that gets them the most engagement and this with the stuff that gets them the broadest engagement, I guess. If you look at why Trump won, it's because he was able to connect that like um, sort of anger and fear with very real like your lives are bad economically. I'm going to make them better. Like I'm going to, and like, here's how I'm going to kick out the immigrants so that every American get it, can get a job again. And I'm going to bring all of the old coal jobs that the tree huggers took away from you. Um, and, and I'm going to bring those right back and we're going to manufacture stuff again. Um, 
But the Republicans didn't really have that this cycle. What they did have was all of the social stuff. And when I, the, the couple of times that I was on the campaign trail um, in, I, I visited Pennsylvania um, for Rolling Stone and uh, in Ohio um, for Rolling Stone at different parts in the campaign. Um, and the social stuff hits and it hits hard. Like I, I was kind of terrified being in these rooms and hearing the response that Vance um, and Mastriano and these, these candidates and stuff like that were getting when they just like pivoted back to um, trans kids in the schools and abortion and stuff like that. But I think some of that was kind of like selection bias and that these rooms were often like the events were at churches and they were funded by, um, you know, a pro, pro, uh, like anti-abortion groups and stuff like that. And, um, some, I think my Ohio trip was before, uh, Rose overturned Pennsylvania, uh, was after. Um, and I think they sort of thought that, like, because they were getting big responses from people and because the people that were coming out to see them were really into that, that that's what would get them the sort of middle of the way voters, too. And that's and that's clearly not what happened. Um, and so I'm just hoping that the Democrats realize that there is like there's space to step into with that, where you can just kind of ignore some of these social things that the Republicans are doubling down on, obviously not ignoring, you know, big issues like like abortion and, um, you know, uh, uh, sex and gender equality and things like that. But but not playing on that game and instead offering people, you know, as you say, like these these things that address their material needs and being able to present like a very clear way that you are going to help them. Um, and I think that's going to be hugely effective at sort of countering like you don't have to constantly play the like Republicans are bigots game because they'll do that for you if that makes sense. But you do need to play the like here's why voting for us is going to be better than voting for them. Yeah, and I, you see where races uh, and, and candidates tried to play on Republicans' turf and it didn't go as well uh, or wasn't as easy. You know, Hochul barely won in New York. Uh, but it tried to frame it as this like, oh, yeah, actually, crime is a problem and I'm the better alternative on crime when that's just not something it showed. Exit polling showed was actually a big deal to voters. That was just a media narrative that a lot of people uh, ate up. You're not going to win that battle on their turf. Don't don't take the bait. When I was in Pennsylvania this past weekend for uh, uh, an event, I was like shocked at how many billboards I saw. That just said, like, literally, Fetterman equals poverty and crime. And when I crossed the state line into Pennsylvania, I think we had, like, kind of done a roundabout way through Delaware. But, like, whatever the freeway is that coming from D.C. to to P.A., literally as soon as we crossed the state line, it was, like, four or five billboards in a row. Just the same billboard. And it was a picture of, like, a boarded-up building that said Fetterman equals poverty and crime. Over and over and over and over again. And they had all... And this was sponsored by, like, Jack Posobiec's, like, pack. <laughs> which, I don't know if you've seen their ads. Like, they Political were genius. Yeah. It was all, like, crime ads. It was, like, crime's out of control. Democrats want more crime. And, like, that was something that a lot of reporters just took up and we're like well yeah well crime is a problem crime is up and even some purportedly progressive voices have been like dabbling in this like this kind of cherry-picked sensationalized yeah you know crime reporting 
and acting like, oh, actually, well, no, guys, it is a big issue. We need to do something about it. And progressives are just out of control on this. And they're too soft. And they think crime is okay. Nobody thinks crime is okay. Nobody wants crime. And it was like funny to see like I actually do want their crime, nose at the whole premise. Most people well, don't, yeah. though. Yeah, we're a pro this crime is an podcast. Pro crime, uh, <laughs> <room> <laughs> but like, it just didn't. It didn't affect Fetterman because he didn't play into it. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't try to say, "Well, actually, crime is a problem, and I'm better on it." Because you're you're accepting you're accepting their framing by doing that, and that's the mistake that a lot of Democrats always make. And it, it's it's so easy to fall into that because you look. I mean, just sort of the micro discussions. I, I live in in New York City, which um, just anecdotally, my friends and I like things have been getting worse and worse since the pandemic just in terms of like general safety on the subway and like shit that you see kind of go down on the streets and stuff like that statistically there's you know there's there's not a crime wave anecdotally it seems like there's more but that's not because there is more crime it's because through the sort of economic policies and through what happened to the city during the pandemic and which programs got defunded and things like that a lot of stuff that was either controlled or swept under the rug or something like that became a lot more visible. And I think the GOP that that was reflected in a lot of different cities. Um, and in sort of it's, it's always a very easy thing to fear monitor around. And I think the GOP kind of seized on that. Um, and if you try to play that game, if you try to tell people like, no, crime isn't a problem, like crime isn't it like it's as soon as you enter into that game, it's not going to work. You have to, and I think that's what the, some of the successful Democratic campaigns realize is like you have to pivot to something that provides a, a a better and more coherent explanation for how you're going to make things better than just like they're lying about crime or crime is not that bad or you know we love crime or something <laughs> like that. You just like you can't. It's it's a trap. It's well, always a trap, and yeah. they they have set this up and set these conditions up like. To, to be a trap. Republicans know that the economic policies that they institute for people are going to make things less safe and less pleasant for everyone like operating in society. And they do those on purpose because they know that they can then run against that. Yeah. And um, I, you know, as much as uh, liberals and Democrats are terrified now of the idea of talking about defunding the police and convince themselves that it's this like, uh, you know, uh, this, this albatross around their neck. The reality is if just throwing billions of dollars at the police meant that there was going to be less crime, then America would be the safest country in the entire world. You know, we talk about crime getting worse in places like New York city. What's the NY, what's the NYPD budget? It's like several billion dollars. It's like and 4 billion or something. Yeah. Like and that, that's, I think. that's yeah. the thing is that like throwing more money into that endless money pit is not going to resolve the problem. What is going to help fix the problem, though, is investing in housing, social programs, education, you know, all these things that have been completely sliding off the off the rails for generations that conservatives and Republicans want to make worse, that want to underfund them even more. That's that's a message that I think you can resonate with people. It doesn't mean that, like, you need to, um, even though I think they should do this, it doesn't mean you need to, you know, embrace, like, police abolition or anything like that. But you can make the case to people that throwing more money at the police doesn't actually fix the problem and investing in actual human beings and people's material needs does help the problem. Yeah, sorry, I misspoke. Uh, it's it's a five point three billion oh, operating okay. yeah. budget this year. Yeah, 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 not 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 four billion. And that yeah yeah that that keeps going up. That's what happened 
you know, the, the result of the protests in, in 2020 and, and the rest of the pandemic was that social programs got, uh, you know, defunded or cut and the police budget continued to go up. Um, and you know, the, the, the situation in the city is what it is. Uh, and, and increasing the police budget didn't, didn't help that. You mentioned earlier that some of the culture war fights just turned people off or didn't have as big of an effect on the election as the right had hoped. And I think the race that perfectly sums that up is Lauren Boebert's. She's up. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it has tightened. Currently, she's up around or he, she's down around 60 votes. But from what I just read, most of the votes that have yet to be counted are from areas where her opponent, Adam Frisch, is up by a lot, including one area where he's up by like plus 58. So like she very well could lose this race. And that's a, that's like a pretty red district in like rural Colorado. And I think like no, there's no better explanation of, or, or illustration of how ineffective that is as an electoral strategy. It just plays well on the internet to a bunch of freaks, but that is, uh, <laughs> that, that's a good illustration of how people don't really care about that kind of stuff like real people don't care about that kind of stuff on the other side like we've seen that with some progressives before where they just like become epic posters during their primary get shellacked and then just kind of never stop posting right and then like ultimately just like lose their minds and uh who knows where they end up but like there's been a handful of these like super lefty like epic poster primary candidates who just kind of never stop posting i feel like that's her destiny after she of course contests she's, she's, the gonna, be the, she's gonna be the tulsi gabbard of colorado <laughs> like, <laughs> she, she's gonna flip she's gonna flip sides she's gonna become a democrat yeah she's that oh man i don't bober is a democrat that's uh that's Welcome that would to be the probably resistance. the funniest possible turn yeah <laughs> the, that's funny though is that it, there, there really isn't like what is i'm trying to think of like what the inverse tulsi gabbard is where it was like because you you had you had plenty of like you know the lincoln project people and like the never trumpers or whatever who are just like oh this is the way that that we're going i just i you know i see him on msnbc all the time um there's a there's a guy who it's just like particularly like mind melting for me who is the um republican communications director in the in the local house race when I was a journalist at an alt weekly in Southern California. And he was just this like muckraking fire slinging, like guy trying to unseat, a, you know, pulling out all the stops to try and unseat a pretty safe, like democratic co Congress uh, seat or whatever. And then he like went to DC and then the Trump years had this epiphany he is now like an MSNBC commenter on like everything. And just is on TV all the time as like a democratic strategist or whatever. And I'm like, Talking you about gotta be Kurt kidding Bardella? Me. Yes, yep, that's <laughs> that's that's the one. Um, I mean, yeah, his, his story turn is has wild. Been hilarious. There, are, there are just like levels to that. Like the stuff he did in DC before he like exiled himself to Santa Barbara is just like so. Yeah, anytime I see him on screen, he it's worked very at funny fucking to me. Breitbart. <laughs> yes, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but so so there's like there's like plenty of creatures like that. But I don't know if there's anyone who like seemed to be like a true like fringe believer in the far right that then was just like actually i'm gonna like pivot to socialism and like you know doing it because that very much was 
you you can make a convincing argument that you know Tulsi was always like a, a semi-fascist like Islamophobic cult member um even when she was like masquerading as a progressive but like for a while she was like kind of walking the walk and talking the talk you know like stumping for bernie and going for medicare for all and stuff like that and now she's just like uh i love guns and tax breaks um and uh the democrats are going to like murder your children and make them trans like <laughs> oh look my laundry is done you get handed the burlap sack with the dollar signs on it <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> my my conspiracy well i don't want to get too far into conspiracy uh but my conspiracy is that um, she's she's Teal's next weapon. Like uh, he is he God. is he is shadow funding something, and he's gonna try and astroturf her into a race. Like I, I don't really know what it would be at this point. Like we got to keep watch her like a hawk and see if she like moves out of Hawaii into like another battleground state or something like that. But maybe like, it's gonna be a Tulsi Jimmy Dore uh, unity ticket. <laughs> the insurgency is beginning. <laughs> the the people's party or whatever yeah doesn't doesn't he have yeah he has like a oh man um (laughs) no i mean i i honestly think she's gonna she's gonna if if trump runs in 24 and if you know god forbid he wins um she'll have a spot in the administration like she's been gunning for that for you know she she was gunning for that in 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 the 2020 cycle i think but now just kind of openly god imagine like a secretary of defense tulsi gabbard What do we think? Do we think Trump's um, <laughs> status as the sort of uh, you know top guy in the conservative movement is? Did you think, do we think it took a bit of a hit last night because he was really setting up for this whole red wave and getting ready to take credit for it, and it didn't really materialize, and now he's kind of trying to distance himself from it at the same time. The, the, the uh, quote, the quote he gave was so yeah, funny. it was wonderful. It was like a yeah, Max interview or something like that. Oh, I, I I put it in a newsletter I wrote last night. Um, he literally said, well, if I think if they win, I should get all the credit. If they lose, I should not be blamed yeah, at all. And that's it's just, just smart. Like, that's, yeah. that's perfect. That man. rocks. That's just, that's just smart politics. <laughs> that's, you, you, can't, you can't lose. It's <laughs> brilliant. Heads I wow. win, tails you lose, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's five-dimensional chess right there. Um, I, I, I think it took a hit. I've been talking to friends about this. I think it definitely took a hit. And I honestly think, like that sort of the mainstream party and a lot of um, the Republican infrastructure at this point is, and from everything you hear from like sort of, you know, the DC access hounds like Scuttlebutt and everything, they're all like have all their Republican consultant buddies like texting them being like, we need to move on from Donald Trump. This is terrible. Like, you know, but I think the structure that they put in place, the Republican party has winner take all primaries means that like, even if these guys don't like him, like you stick him on a ballot and say, you've just got to get a majority of the fanatical GOP base that votes in primaries to vote for you. And you're going to win this thing means like they don't really have, because the Democrats have so many different tools that they can use to like ice out candidates that they don't like. Um, And we know this because they've used it to ice out like every progressive, unless one like manages to worm their way through the cracks. Right. But the Republicans, it's like it's like winner take all. And people know you can't ice out Trump. Right. So I don't see, you know, if he decides to run, I don't I don't see DeSantis or anyone else beating him. Like they're going to have to fall in line again. And those quotes from anonymous like consultants or campaign advisors and whatnot, you know, take those with a grain of salt. It's within the, you know, the cloak of uh, anonymity. But ultimately, a lot of these people just care about money. 
And if Trump right. is still like the, the same effective fundraising machine as he has showed to be over the last several years, they're just going to work with them because it makes them a lot more money. Like they don't ultimately give a shit. It's easy to criticize someone anonymously, you know, get a dig in in a tweet to like Sahil Captor or whatever his name is. But like that's it. <laughs> Like it, that that's where the, like their convictions begin and end. If there's a if there's money on the table, they're going to take it. And I think that's why they're actually mad at him. Right. Because isn't there like a critique of him in, in that like he kind of screwed up these elections because he sat on like 100 million of just like stuff that he's been of campaign funding that he's just been sort of collecting passively through all yeah. these rallies and emails and stuff like that. Like they're not necessarily mad at him for like coming in and shaking up the process. They're mad at him because he like tried to play kingmaker but then didn't put his money where his mouth was in a lot of these races yeah yep that's uh it's 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 a sign that these people are truly only motivated by that it's how much money they can make as a consultant on some of these races to some of them maybe yeah they are deeply upset that the republicans didn't win i mean they have the house they they basically stopped a lot of what biden's going to be able to do i mean they're they're probably going to have the house yeah like that's all you need you, well, you, that's a huge impediment. Yeah, and that does kind of lead me to what I wanted to get into also. It's just, just that, like, as much as people are, like, celebrating, like, there's a big victory, I mean, functionally, even though this red wave didn't materialize, functionally, it will be basically impossible for them to, like, pass any legislation moving forward. Obviously, there's things that Biden can do independent of, uh, you know, Congress or the Senate, but, you know, is he going to be willing to do any, take any of these big steps uh, that he could do, you know, on his own? Um, that remains to be seen, but that's functionally, it's really the result is the same, which is uh, it was with their, whether there's a red wave or not, which is that they're not going to be able to legislate for the next two years um, at all. Right. And I mean, you know, of course, with the with the barely 50 votes and the, you know, mansion and cinema problem, it, this was already an impediment. Um, but yeah, I mean, it gets it gets that much harder because you don't even have at that point the House to be able to at least you know, kind of effectively pressure the Senate um, to keep passing stuff in the meantime. Because, you know, if you look at, like, the list of bills that, like, the House passed and sent to the Senate and then just, like, died this year, it's, you know, it's it's grim. But, like, we won't even have that for the for the back two half. Um, I don't know. I guess you could look to you could look to student debt relief that maybe in these situations that the administration is, like, slowly getting a little bit more comfortable with, you know, kind of governing by fiat, by by executive action and by, you know, just trying to like get stuff done, um, even if they know that, you know, if there is another transfer of power in 2024, that the GOP is going to try and roll all of this back immediately. But like, it's something it's better than nothing, right? And it might have even like, slowed the bleed in this election cycle a lot through through, like you said, uh, Rob, through student debt relief. What they're going to need to do is try to get as much done through agencies, departments, bureaus, and executive order. You know, you potentially could have st- control of the Senate still. Um, that is one way to do it. I mean, Chris Smalls uh, has has pointed out repeatedly throughout this cycle that, like, look, Biden's not perfect. Biden is definitely not perfect. The Democrats are definitely not perfect. But the one thing that we have on our side right now is the Labor Relations Board. Like, we want that. We want to keep that. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be able to make inroads and, and increase labor protections that way. Holding on to that is critical. And that's that's a deeply important issue to a lot of workers. So 
doing what we can through departments and bureaus is going to be key. But Biden also needs to get smart with executive orders because you also have the Supreme Court and Republicans who are especially especially litigious and people like Leonard Leo, who that's the courts are their whole game, who are going to challenge every executive order they can. So getting creative, getting smart and being nimble with executive orders is a way to do popular things to keep people motivated because that's what that's what helped them this cycle. If they had not canceled student debt, uh, it, you would have seen a, a bigger drop off in Gen Z participation. Like people just understood like that's that's one thing that the president can do. And that's one thing this party wants to do. And seems so simple doing popular things turns out to be good politics wow yeah have you talked to anyone about this because like this i'm writing it down yeah yeah i think your your point about the agencies is really clutch as well because like i i mean i i really don't think some of the like moves toward unionization at companies like you know is chris smalls able to do what chris smalls did like not under the biden nlrb you know are we able to get a second which you know failed as second elections always do but like uh, in the trump and lrb i don't think bessner even gets a second election right that stuff gets yep. tossed out i mean it's a huge thing you look at the other agencies like ajit pai no longer being the head of the fcc is like an enormous thing that's affecting an, a, a lot of like u.s like telecommunications policy just you know by virtue of like him like a former verizon lawyer like not running the entire thing right like so, yeah, yeah, I, I think I think if the administration can kind of get comfortable with which, you know, they, they are. I think the Biden administration is very comfortable with with doing these sort of like incremental gains behind the scenes. But I, I think hopefully it gives them more of a chance in 24 and it gives everyone down ballot more of a chance in 24 if they keep just sort of like taking these decisive actions that progress popular politics uh and and give them concrete things to show from it uh even through like these legislative barriers that that you know gives them the best shot that they can in the next cycle yeah it's going to be tight for republicans in the house like it isn't like it isn't like they're going to have this colossal majority i mean dems just a couple minutes ago flipped another seat in the house uh in new mexico's second district gabe vasquez unseated yvette harrell so, like, it's going to be, like, that they're even flipping seats in this election is wild. And it's going to be extremely tight. So it's all going to come down to how you message on these things that you're probably, you know, assuming Warnock wins the runoff, that you're probably going to be able to get through in the Senate. And you could maybe get a couple people in these vulnerable swing districts that Republicans now hold on your side. But it's going to, you're going to have to be effective and strategic in your messaging and how you hammer these people. Good thing the Democrats are known for their great messaging <laughs> prowess. Yeah. Should yeah. be no problem. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's another thing. So, you know, I know I said earlier when, when I was on the campaign trail and I was I was saying that, like, a lot of the Republicans' uh, messaging was on these, like, kind of social issues and, and stuff like that that, that didn't, it turns out, didn't connect with a, a broad swath of voters. But... I think in a lot of places they were able to make the gains that they were, especially I, I think the Ohio Senate election is a, is a good um, is a good example of this because you had J.D. Vance, you know, basically reading from the exact same playbook of like generic pro-Trump uh, stuff, you know, but when he went up against a, an extremely boring, like sort of wishy-washy middle grounder that didn't didn't have, 
you know, a quintessential Democrat that didn't have like a coherent or compelling message, um, then, then yeah, then J.D. Vance is able to win an election, right? And so I think the Democrats need, they have to take a lesson from that race and not just that like, I'm worried that the lesson's going to be like, well, you know, Ohio is turning into another Florida, like these races aren't very contestable anymore, like we we can't do this, and, and not like we need to figure out how to put somebody in in these races in these positions that's going to actually have like a message that connects with people that they're going to they're going to say things that get democratic voters and possible democratic voters as riled up about stuff and as sort of engaged as you know the the 2016 GOP pitch did that even that that some of this stuff like still gets people like you have to say for the GOP like that everything they want to do is horrible, but like at least it's an ethos. Like there's there's a pretty clear like what the GOP stands for is pretty clear in the minds of like even the most like politically disengaged like disconnected voters. And I don't think the same can be said about the Democrats, right? Other than like the de- Democrats are the party that don't want to ban abortion, they don't want to do whatever. Um, but that's not really you know that's not really a platform, right? saying like we won't ban abortion isn't you know it's like a, a negative like that isn't a platform that you're going to give people yeah well that's uh that's it it's like they promised to you would talk about abortion you know obama famously promised to codify that into law and didn't biden said if we get more senators we're going to codify it into law and didn't but yeah that's going to be the thing that they're going to make have to make explicit promises about uh to people rather than just running on we're not quite as evil as the, as the uh, these other the other jokers, right? You know, that's not going to work. Vote for us if you don't want this to happen. You know? Yeah, because I think I think yeah, you're going to get diminishing returns with that. And and maybe it worked this cycle because they saw that Republicans were actually going to follow through on that because they did overturn Roe. But I think that that pitch hasn't connected a lot of the time because there was there's there's always this suspension of disbelief. I think for anyone going into an election, which is like how bad can it actually be, right? You know, they, I know they say that they want to do these things and everyone's telling me to be afraid of them, but like, they're not actually going to ban abortion, right? They're not actually going to do these things. And I think a lot of us know that like, yes, they are actually going to do that. For, but for a while, like, you know, you, you running against that kind of suspension of disbelief that, that a lot of people have um, is, is yeah. going to be tough. Well, uh, uh, Jack, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's great to break down the election uh, with you. Thanks for yeah. this is a team up yeah, team up fun. episode. Very yeah, exciting. A good, a good little joint episode. Discourse blog is uh, we're kind of experimenting with a Substack audio feature, so um, expect kind of more of these um, short uh, one-off interviews with people, but also kind of jumping around in these joint episodes with uh, the other podcasters that you know and love. Um, so thanks so much for for having me on and, and sharing this episode. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>